I loved the appeal of the private sector, being able to take matters into your own hands, get that immediate gratification of building something that in some ways you didn't need permission to do it. And I remember being at the White House needing five people's approval to get anything, to do anything. And just seeing the ability for me to create things so quickly and have it show up to you know, CEOs and hedge fund managers and all of these people with that an intern created was something that was really powerful. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to the 34th episode of Business for Good and what an inspirational story it is. By the time he was 22 years old, Arturo Elizondo had already interned in the White House and for Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. But as the Harvard grad learned, making the world a better place via public policy, it's a long and arduous road. And he wanted to make a difference faster. With a zeal to help save the world by creating an alternative to the factory farming of animals, Arturo bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco with no job, no apartment, and no plan. He just wanted to get involved in the alternative protein world in some way. His first thought was to explore working at VCs to fund the space, or maybe getting a job at one of the companies that was already founded. But as you'll hear in this conversation, a chance meeting at a conference resulted in Arturo becoming the 22-year-old CEO of a new biotech startup, Clara Foods, to make real egg proteins without using chickens. Well, today, Arturo is now 27, and Clara Foods has since gone on to raise $50 million in venture capital. When I last interviewed Arturo for my book, Queen Meat, we sat in a tiny office with only a handful of scientists working away to recreate the egg. This time, we sat in Clara Foods's 14,000 square foot complex, which houses several dozen staff and their state-of-the-art equipment, all laboring to fulfill the original mission of making products that render the factory farming of chickens simply obsolete. In this episode, Arturo chats mainly about the company's origin story, but he also discusses the lessons he's learned in the past five years of running this startup, now that they're on the precipice of releasing their first products, an achievement Arturo says in this interview is imminent. We also discuss his recent award as Person of the Year from the National Hispanic Institute and what it means for Arturo as one of the few Latino founders in the biotech alt-protein world. It's a riveting conversation and one I hope you'll find inspirational. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine about it. And she confessed that it made her feel like, you know, man, this guy's done all this before he's even 30. Well, what have I done? That's, of course, not the goal of the episode. The goal, though, is to show that you don't have to be a superhuman to do something super for the world. As Arturo says in this interview, it's, if it's not going to be you who fixes the mess humanity has created, then who will it be? So be inspired. And after you're done cheering on Arturo, think about what you can do to help fix that mess, too. Arturo Elizondo, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure for me to be here <laughs> because the last time I was in the Clara Foods office, it was years ago, and it was your entire space of Indie Bio, I think was smaller than the conference room that we are currently sitting in <laughs> at the new Clara Foods office. I guess it's not that you knew, it's a couple of years old, but you got like 40 people working here. It's a beautiful space in South San Francisco. I just took a tour of it. My mind was blown by the amazing uh, gadgets and uh, geniuses who you have working here. So first and foremost, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's really impressive. So let's just go back though, because when we were talking the first time we met, you know, this was still a really new idea for you. Uh, you did not have a scientific background. You were somebody who was trying to start their own company. You were in an accelerator program, IndieBio. But how did this all happen? Like, how did this come to be that you were, that we're now sitting in this beautiful office? Like, go back to the Arturo in college thinking about what it is that you wanted to do with your life. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's an incredibly like powerful story of, of the power of serendipity yeah, um, and being really at the right place at the right time. And I, I feel incredibly and just incredibly privileged to mm. be able to use my life to, to do what I feel I was put on this earth to do. And okay. That's a really powerful feeling. What were and you put on this earth to do? <laughs> I was put on this earth to shut down the last factory farm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to talk all about that, Arturo, what you were doing to shut down the last factory farm. But 
you presumably when you were a child, were you mm -hmm. thinking about these issues about factory farming? Like how did this even come onto your radar in the first place? Because you grew up in, in Texas and also in Mexico, right? Didn't you spend my recollection? Yeah, part of yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was born in a small town in Texas called Laredo mm -hmm. uh, on the southern on the southern border with Mexico. Okay. And I'm one of six kids, grew up in a very, in a Mexican Catholic family okay. um, in a community where it's a quarter million people. It's actually considered the least diverse metropolitan area in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, it's a Mexican-American enclave. Wow. Um, so it's like 90 plus percent Mexican-American. Everyone speaks Spanish. And um, and people um, you know, typically consider like traditional job paths, right? Being a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, et cetera. Um, we just grew up in a family with like with a bunch of animal lovers and like we would rescue pigeons that would you know crash into our windows we like our dogs always slept on our beds and and, and we just really loved animals yeah. and i remember not really thinking about where my food came from and not realizing what it took to put the meat milk and eggs that i ate every single day until I spent a summer at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Hmm. So when I was younger, I really wanted to become a lawyer. When I was younger, I really wanted to become a lawyer to, um, to basically right the wrongs of society. I felt that if I could leverage the law to improve the lives of, of, of people and animals across the world, that that, that, that would be um, a life that I would be really proud of. Hmm. And so I felt that in government, there was actually a way that you can change policy. Even if it's one small change in policy, you can impact the lives of millions. Mm -hmm. And that was really encouraging. And so I began interning for my congressman in Texas. He sat in the ad committee in Congress and recommended me to the USDA, where I, um, where I began interning in the sub-agency called the Food Safety and Inspection Service that regulates every slaughterhouse in the country. And mm -hmm. I was 18 years old. <laughs> I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was, I was there at a time when I had the opportunity to you know, read the audits from other government agencies, from Congress, from, you know, from, from nonprofits about, about the animal you know, protein industrial complex, and it just blew my mind. And I had no idea that we slaughtered over a million animals every single hour just in the U.S. alone. Yeah. Now, were you a vegetarian yet at this point or you were still pre-vegetarian? Uh, very, very pre-vegetarian. <laughs> so I grew up eating two eggs for breakfast every morning like any good Mexican. Mm -hmm. And I grew up eating, you know, had, having carne asadas and barbecues every Sunday like any good Mexican Texan. Mm -hmm. And 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 animal, like I just, I could not imagine what not what not having meat on my plate even looked like. I, I just could I didn't even consider it a meal. Yeah. And but at the USDA, I was like, oh my God, like this, I I had no idea that this is actually how my food was made. And I, you know, in, in Texas, I had never met a vegetarian before. I'd never met um I had never met any uh I'd never met um you know, anyone who was Muslim or Jewish or, um, or just thought differently than I did until I went to Harvard. And that's when everything started changing for me, when I began being much more critical about the world around me. And after I experienced at the USDA, I became really intrigued with, um, with food, but it wasn't enough to get me to stop eating it. Yeah. I, I, I it, it was a long time coming, but and part of it was because I thought I was going to wither away. Like my parents, that's all they would tell me is like, look, you know, you need animal protein. And, and then I went to, um, and then at Harvard, like they labeled everything like kosher, halal, vegan, vegetarian. They had so many options. I was like, wow, like I didn't even know that these like veggie patties existed. And, and, and I, and I began trying these products and I was like, Oh, like it's not that bad. And so for new years, I convinced my brother who was also uh, in new England for, uh, who's also doing college in, in, in Massachusetts to go vegetarian with me for new years. Huh. And so we did it. And it's yeah, the nice. only resolution that I have ever kept. <laughs> Very nice. What year was this? What year did you this? This was, um, this was 2012. Okay, so uh, happy eight-year vegan anniversary. <laughs> That's really cool. Thank you. 
So you're now at Harvard, you're studying business, right? Uh, government. Government, okay. Yeah. And that leads you uh, to end up uh, having a clerkship at the Supreme Court. Tell me about it. Well, um, so I began doing all these different internships in government, trying to find my a way for me to fit in because I, I really wanted to, uh, to see where I can make the most impact. Mm -hmm. And, and now you're now a vegetarian. Were you thinking about impact for animals? Were you thinking about impact for, uh, environment? Like what was the motivating factor for you? Eventually, eventually became animals. I, but initially it was like, just make an impact because I, I felt that I, I, I won like the, the, the lottery of life. Like mm -hmm. I had, I grew up in a really, uh, with, with a great family, with a lot of education opportunities. And so I was at Harvard and I, I, I wanted to, I, I knew that I always wanted to leave the world a little better than I found it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find one way to do that, whether it was to help it by helping people or animals, hopefully everyone and everything in the process. Mm -hmm. And and then I began interning. So I, I did my, I went interned for a congressman and then the USDA and then, and then I, and then the White House um, under President Obama's last for uh, the end of his first term. And that's when I became very disillusioned um, with government because of the gridlock and just how hard it was to actually make a difference mm. um, when there were people in power who basically didn't want anything to pass. And, 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 and I was very disillusioned. And so I began pursuing experiences in the private sector in, in parallel. And I did a consulting internship. And then I, I did uh, banking uh, um, in India. And I, I loved the appeal of the private sector, being able to take matters into your own hands, get that immediate gratification of building something that, that, in some ways, you didn't need permission to do it. And I remember being at the White House needing five people's approval to get anything, to do anything. And, 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 and just seeing the ability for me to create things so quickly and have it, and have it show up to you know, CEOs and hedge fund managers and all of these, um, and all these people with that, that an intern created was something that was really powerful. But I, I, I didn't want to give up on government. And so I... I, I ultimately went to Geneva uh, to study diplomacy, and I felt that maybe international government was a way for me to make a difference. And that's when I began reading about, I used that as an excuse to focus on global food security. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, I was like, look, I'm vegetarian. Like I, 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 and I just started doing a lot of research on my own, like the environmental impact of, of animal versus, you know, versus plant-based diets of, of like the, the, the health concerns, like how can I get protein as a vegetarian? Like, will I die? And, and like, these were all very legitimate questions for me. And I spent some time in Geneva and that's where I, would be, I began researching um, the environmental impact. I had no idea that it, the animal agriculture consumes over a third of the world's water, a third of the world's arable land. That's the number one threat to species, you know, to, to deforestation. And because I faced so much criticism with my friends in college and with my family back home about a vegetarian diet and eventually a vegan one, I had to be, I thought I had to be so well armed with data and information and talking points that I, and I just enjoyed learning about it so much that, um, that I became obsessed with learning about this and use this opportunity in Geneva to, to learn about the space. If we can get, if we can make food that is just as good for people and just as tasty and just as affordable, you win the market. Mm -hmm. Like if, if my like when people go to the grocery stores, like when my mom, like she doesn't care whether something is vegetarian or vegan, she cares that it's delicious and affordable. Um, and, and also that, that it, that relatively healthy. Um, and my mom and my dad and everyone in my family, they, not many people like go in and look at the label and say, Hey, like what, you know, what are the ingredients on here? It's, it's really relatively simple. And, and I thought if, if, if you can convince her, if I can convince my mom to eat my product, that's what you, that, that to eat vegetarian or vegan, that's, that's the way to win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at that point though, Arturo, you didn't have a product. You didn't have a company. You moved out to San Francisco yeah. and you were thinking about, you wanted to make an impact in mm -hmm. some way, but you really weren't sure what. So how did you come up with the idea for Clara Foods yeah. and what, what happened? So 
at the at in Geneva, I became hooked. Like I, I couldn't stop thinking about anything else. I had the government, the internship with, with just a sort of my lined up. Um, and I knew that that was gonna be my last opportunity to really give government a, a shot. That was going to be my own personal litmus test to say, I, this, if, like, if, if I don't actually love this, I need, I, I, I need to at least explore what, what looking at food would look like. And I began having all these conversations my senior year at Harvard about my senior year of college about, um, about just learning about the, the plant-based, the plant-based um, space. I, I went vegan. So I connected with all these people. And obviously, you know, most vegans that, 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 that I met were super passionate about food and food tech and all these different products that were coming out. That's where I met, um, you know, Josh Balk from, from the, uh, who had just founded Hampton Creek and, and Alexis, who's now founder of Wider. Alexis Fox. Alexis Fox. And, and I, I was so inspired by, by the work that they were doing. And they gave me a lot of hope that there, there are careers out there of improving our food system and, and, and that they're, and I know someone who has at least, you know, done it. And that gave me a, that gave me a lot of hope. And so I, but I wasn't ready to make the, the leap just yet. And so my boss, my, my boss at, um, uh, one senior person at the internship at Credit Suisse where, where I did banking, I, he was a huge, uh, advocate and also like super into the whole food tech scene. And he, and I remember being in DC and saying, Hey, I'm about to take this job. I was actually going to work at the Obama administration as a political appointee. And I remember calling him and saying, Hey, I'm going to take, I think I'm going to take this job. Um, and he's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why aren't you in, you should be in San Francisco doing the, like, like in food tech, like what about all the stuff that we talked about? Like you, you were made for this and you were so passionate about this. And he was some, someone that believed in me more than I believed in myself. And, and I, I just thought the idea of joining this untested, you know, unproven space was, was a risk that I was not willing to take. But I realized in that moment that if I didn't go out there and, and, and just try to make it happen, I would always be wondering what if, and I, and that I knew that if I was working, I, I had worked my way up in government or, or some other, and some other industry, I would always be wondering what if I had made that move when I was younger, because at that point I'd have the golden handcuffs and I, it'd be harder for me to make that transition. And, and so the, 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 the what if question actually really got to me. And so after that conversation, literally the next day I booked a one-way ticket to San Francisco. And I had no job, no place to stay. <laughs> I was like, I just, I, I, I need to at least give it a shot. And, and, and if it doesn't work out, I'll give myself a few months. If it doesn't work out, then I can always go back to government and I can always go back into finance or whatever. I knew that the worst case scenario was just getting a, a, another job mm-hmm. and, 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 and actually breaking it down into, uh, for me, starting this, this journey was realistically, what does a worst case scenario look like? And in your head, at least in my head, it seemed like a, a much bigger deal than it really was. And when I really put it on paper and thought about it, it's like it's, worst case scenario is actually not that bad. Like the, the, the downside is pretty minimal, but the upside could be massive. Mm. And so I can actually take a really calculated risk to say, let me give myself some time. Let me prove this out and test this and just go to San Francisco and explore this. And I began looking and interning and, 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 and calling up all, all actually all of these VC funds and, and, and talking to, to other people in the space um, about this and realizing that there weren't really that many opportunities that the space was so, so small. And I couldn't be work for a VC fund to deploy capital to these companies. And so I had to, in some ways, uh, go at it by joining one of the companies, which I felt was very risky at the time because these companies were so small. Um, and that's when I called up um, Josh Balk. I, I, at that point, I had been looking at a few different uh um, a few different companies, um, actually outside of food because I was running out of money as well. And I was like, I need to find a job. When you flew out there, you had no place to stay. Where did you sleep that night? So I, 
<laughs> so I like posted on Facebook like the day that that I po- that that I booked my flight that I needed a place to stay. So a friend from the who interned with me um, at the White House offered his apartment oh, for nice. for for a week. Yeah, and then um, just people's goodwill. I had um, I had the I was staying with a family in D.C. Uh, dog sitting for them while I was with uh, Justice Sotomayor, and they helped connect me to to a family here in San Francisco who. Um, who had an empty room and, and, and let me crash there huh, uh, nice. until I got my 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 standing. So you get out to San Francisco, you you call Josh Balk up. I, I remember part of the story here that he was <laughs> going to meet with you, but then he ended up not being able to meet with you <laughs> on the day that you had anticipated talking to him, right? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. I, go and, ahead. and so you end up going uh, to a different event that day because you couldn't meet with Josh and what happened? So he was like, look, just, Come with me uh, to this conference, and hopefully you'll you'll, you'll meet you'll meet some people there, mm-hmm. and hopefully something will happen. Like he's like, I'm not sure what, but but you know, just come with me to to, to that event. That day is a day like Hampton Creek got sued by Unilever, and so he doesn't show up to this conference, and so show I show up by myself, and I find this like empty seat in this t- in, in, in 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 this table the only table that had young people in it. And it was like 50 people. It was a food systems conference. And it was one of the first food tech conferences out there. And I find this empty seat and I take it. And little did I know that I'm sitting next to if, next to my future co-founder, Dave Anchel, and Isha from New Harvest. Um, Isha Datar. Isha Datar from New Harvest, who... Uh, uh, who had brought Dave from Canada, <laughs> my co-founder, to check out the food space as well. And I was, and we were sitting next to the Perfect Day guys <laughs> as well. So it was a really great community. And we were just ta- started talking and, and Dave, um, David had this amazing idea of making eggs without using chickens. And I was like so blown away by it. I was like, this is exactly, like if you can make f- the, the, the food that has the, 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 the taste and the nutrition um, of eggs, but made in a in a more efficient process. That's like that's the way to do it. And I, so let's just talk about that yeah. briefly. We'll interlude from your own story. What's the problem with eggs? Like, why would you want to make something that doesn't involve conventional egg production? The challenge with eggs is one. The opportunity with eggs is that they're in everything, and so. <laughs> As someone who who was trying to not eat eggs, it was almost impossible because if you look at almost every, like almost you go to a grocery store and you look at the back of the label, more often than not they have eggs in them, and you it's hard, it's really hard to bake a cake if, if to 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 bake all these products without using eggs because they provide functionality that almost nothing else does, mm-hmm. and. Over one trillion eggs are consumed in, in the world every single year. Over ninety percent of those eggs, the ones especially produced in the U.S., are produced using uh, u- using the industrial factory farming complex. Are incredibly inefficient. As efficient as they are, they're also incredibly inefficient. You need over six hundred gallons of water to make a dozen eggs. Um, they are, and each egg has six grams of protein and these chickens will never walk on grass or see the sun. And I felt that this, this particular problem was something that I could really rally behind because I, I, I wasn't trained. I'm not a serial founder. I wasn't trained in venture capital. I, 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 I don't have a biotech background, but I knew that I could sell something that I really, if I really believed in it, I could pitch it. And that's what, when Isha brought David and me together, um, that was really the the partnership is that Dave was going to lead the science and development of this product, and that I was going to be getting a, you know building a business plan, building a deck, you know pitching to investors, and really selling this story. Because at this point, you know we we didn't have a product, mm-hmm. so it was really to 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 
to be able to paint what the future can look like. So the original idea of producing eggs without chickens, the actual biotech that you'd be doing was quite different, right? Like you were originally thinking yes. about like creating an ovary that you would produce eggs through, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's not what you're doing now. So tell people, you know, you fast forward. So you, you found this company. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But eventually you guys abandoned the idea of creating an ovary that would produce eggs and decide to make eggs yeah. instead of from an ovary, but through microbes. Tell me about that. Yeah. So one of the things that we were looking at was the feasibility. So once um, Isha, David, and I got together, we began actually looking at this a little bit more critically. And Dave was like, well, look, one thing is we can create the entire egg and that's very complex. But two is if you look at the composition of an egg, if you look at it as a sort of product, is that an egg is literally just protein, fats, and water and, and, and minerals. There's, there's nothing else in there. There are no cells, no nothing. And so if you can look at food at the molecular level as a combination of just protein, fats, water, is that you can actually just recreate the, the different pieces and put it back together. And that was, and that felt a lot more tractable because looking at the egg white as our MVP, so we began actually narrowing down the um, MVP the meaning minimal viable product, not most valuable. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, it was also the most valuable part of it because <laughs> the, most the egg white protein. <laughs> the egg white was really expensive at the time. Like egg white, like McDonald's had just launched the the the, the egg white delight. The um, Subway had launched all these. You know, there there was a lot of excitement around the egg white because it was a really clean food. And people were trying to be a little healthier. This was when the health trend started really kicking off. And so egg whites really, really took off as an ingredient. So they became really expensive, actually more expensive than eggs and double the price of yolks. Mm. And also the egg whites were the simplest part of the egg. They were 90% water and 10% protein. Mm. And so we thought, well, we can make the 10% that's protein using a more efficient protein factory. And then at 90% water to it, you can get an egg white that can look, cook, and taste like any other egg white, but produced in a much more efficient and sustainable manner. That's great. So uh, you're, uh, how old are you at this meeting with Dave and, and Isha in San Francisco? I am 22, so right. a few months out of college. So you come out to San Francisco, no place <laughs> to stay, no job. You start looking to get hired maybe by VCs or maybe by Hampton Creek. Instead, you end up going to this event that you leave as a 22-year-old CEO founder of a company. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next step. So you go to get into an accelerator, right? You, yeah. You apply to be an indie bio. So indie, uh, Isha was like, look, indie bio is this accelerator program that helps incubate biotech companies. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like it, right? There's nothing like it. Yeah. And, and, and they're opening up in San Francisco. And you guys, like this would be a perfect opportunity for, for at least you guys to get some initial funding and test out the, and test out the idea. Mm -hmm. And... David and I were like, let's do it. Wow. And so we apply with an idea on paper. IndieBout doesn't do this anymore, I don't think. Uh, but we literally had, like, we had done no science. It was like, this is a business plan. This is the tech. This is how it's going to work. Fortunately, Perfect Day had come out of the, the IndieBio in Ireland. And so there was some, you know, there, there, there was some track record there. And Hampton Creek had been raising and, and Impossible and beyond. And so there, there were some data points there, but we we had nothing, and we applied to IndieBio, and from with a leap of faith, you know, we you know, fortunately there are people like uh, like Ron Arvind and and Ryan from IndieBio uh, believed in us and 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 accepted us into the program. That's and, great. And it was uh, three months where we literally just went in and tried to build a prototype mm -hmm. in the process, and hopefully get some you know. Get, Try and get some investor interest. Yeah, and investor interest you did get. Uh, that was from from your accelerator. Now uh, to the present, we're in 2020 already, where you already have uh, gone through a Series B round. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys share how much you've raised so far? Yeah, so we raised almost 50 million dollars right. in capital uh, uh, through the course of the fundraising. Okay, and how many years has it been now? It's, it's been, been five. All right, so 50 million dollars in capital raised, five years in. How close are we to having a product on the market, Arturo? So we're launching imminently. Imminently, okay. Yeah, yeah. very, very soon. All right, so uh, tell us what you can about what you are going to be launching. I presume it's a, it's a type of egg white protein? Uh, it's a, it, so we are, 
uh, we're launching a few different proteins actually. And so we've been R&D for the last five years, just going really deep on building this animal protein production platform. Okay. So because we focus on the egg white, it gave us the ability to stay focused on making protein. We don't have to worry about, you know, flavor, a lot of flavor, flavor profiles, textures, et cetera, because the egg white is just protein and water. And so all the texture, all the flavor, everything from, from that product is made from the proteins themselves. Hmm. So we can stay really, really focused Focus and what we began doing is actually building a competency around how do you actually get microbes to make protein really efficiently and produce them, uh, produce really functional proteins. And so the egg white was really for us the the tip of the iceberg. And as we began kind of going through it, we began looking at a bunch of different kinds of animal proteins. So we're launching um, we're launching actually egg and non-egg proteins, but all using our core, our core technology and mainly in the, in the B2B space. So we're launching a, a you know, so some of the products that, that we're launching are, you know, how do you, not the egg white itself, but actually the core building blocks. Like what we are working on is building, is essentially supplying the Legos for companies to then build really kick-ass products with our proteins. Mm. So proteins that have really clean taste. So you can make, you can make amazing, you know, protein drinks that actually don't taste like crap and don't have, don't need as much sugar um, and chocolate and vanilla to get them to taste good. We have foaming agents that actually are able to replace eggs and baked goods applications. And we have proteins that, um, that, that help digest other proteins and, 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 and that are used in supplements. Hmm. So our goal is to essentially our, our business model is to be selling these different building blocks to, to different companies and build a portfolio of proteins that actually enable companies to build next-gen animal-free products that are delicious, uh, that are ultimately delicious. And then we can, you know, we can scale in the process. So Arturo, you know, there's some vegans who are going to say, listen, uh, I only care whether animals were used for this or not. And since there are no animals used in it, uh, I'm happy to eat it. There'll be others that will say, you know, I don't think animal proteins are good for me. Therefore, mm-hmm. I don't want to eat it. Uh, I, I presume those people are eating lots of vegan foods that are good for them, that are lots of vegan foods that aren't good for them, whether it's mm-hmm. vegan donuts or, or yeah. whatever else. So I'm, I, I'm not sympathetic to the argument. But yeah. for those people, what would you say? The challenge with animal protein is that oftentimes the way that people eat it today is not pure animal protein. It's a burger, right? A steak, a pork chop, um, you know, milk, et cetera, eggs. And oftentimes these proteins are not just pure proteins. They come basically packaged in a bunch of fat. Mm. And that's, and a bunch of other, you know, you you look at documentaries, there's a bunch of other stuff that's not just the protein itself. And so ultimately, yes, I think when you package it with a bunch of saturated fat, the way that you find most animal protein today, it's not, it's not really nourishing for your body. And so, um, and so what we do is we just provide the the protein and actually the the body, um, these proteins that we're working with, because the egg is, consider this perfect food, um, particularly the, the egg white is incredibly digestible protein. Ultimately, I think from a nutrition standpoint, uh, I think all of our products are really, are really spectacular. Nice. Um, but ultimately our goal is, is not to convince people that, oh, you should eat animal protein or you should eat, you know, you should eat vegan, you should eat sustainably, you should eat whatever. I don't want to tell people anything. Uh, in terms of what they should and should not do. All we're doing is presenting a choice, but ultimately is really working with the supply chain of the food industry to transform it that way. Mm-hmm. And so people, in some ways, the way that they're doing right now, where most consumers don't think about, oh, how much water was used to make this 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 product that I'm eating right now, or how, um, oh, or, you know, how, you know, what is the amino acid profile of the proteins that I'm eating in this product? The, those are not really the questions people are asking themselves every single day when they're in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. People, I, I think there's this crazy stat and I, um, uh, I'll put it up later, but people spend very little time actually in grocery stores looking at the labels of products. It's, it's, it's like split seconds. 
Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, very few people are considering anything about sustainability when they're buying food. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the the taste, price, and convenience of the food are what drive food choices. And, and not just food choices, but consumer choices. I mean, I think about it like, um, you know, I uh, think about even clothing. You know, most people, if you give them a choice to vote on whether or not they want to do, let's say, you know, ban sweatshop goods, they probably, you know, here in San Francisco, I can assure you get an overwhelming vote yeah. to do it. And yet you go to Target and you see like a, a $7 shirt that was made in Bangladesh mm-hmm. and you think to yourself, oh, this is seven bucks. That's awesome. And you don't yeah. think about it. And I think the same is so with food. When you give people a choice, yeah. let's say, to ban the cage confinement of laying hens, overwhelmingly they vote to ban it because mm-hmm. they, they don't like that type of inhumane treatment of animals. But then when you present them with a choice in the supermarket yeah. of a carton of eggs that's yeah. you know 40% cheaper than the other carton, they're likely going to pick the ones that are cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so we just have a real disparity between how we act as citizens and how we act as consumers. And we have to make it the, we have to make the right choice, the better choice, the easier choice for people to make. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly the way that we approach our that we approach our our business is that ultimately, and that was a huge realization for me when I was studying global food security. Not just looking at the U.S. market, but the global the global consumption of animal protein, and it's and I came up I I, I came up with this with this thesis which was that we can make a product, this hypothesis that if we can make a product that is just as good from a sensory perspective, that has that is just as delicious as people are eating now, but a penny cheaper, that's when you see this massive transformation, the, a, a true inflection point of the industry and of the movement. Mm-hmm. When a product can compete and stand on its own two feet with in its own right, as, as, as performing in every way, if not better, uh, across, across taste, and is, a, and, and is just as convenient for people to purchase, that's when the game completely changes. Sure. And that's what we're working towards. And that's why we chose this technology because it's so scalable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, speaking of changing the game, Arturo, you know, the game of your life changed mm-hmm. pretty dramatically when you moved out to San Francisco yeah. and, and you had a chance encounter with some folks. You started out as a 22-year-old CEO. Uh, now, how old are you today? 27. All right. So five years later, here you are, a 27-year-old CEO of a company that's raised tens of millions of dollars. You have about, you know, like three dozen or so people working underneath you at the, at the company. Um, when you consider yourself as, you know, as young as you are to be as accomplished as you are as a CEO, um, what would you advice would you have given to the 22-year-old Arturo sitting at that table with Isha and Alexis and Josh and Dave? Um that or not Josh, but with these other folks, uh, you know, what advice would you have given to yourself then if you could think about all of the transformation that's going to, was about to happen in your life, like mm-hmm. how to be a good leader for a company? I would say the number one learning for me has been to trust my gut. Hmm. I think as a 22 year old, I had that very present, that showed up very much with me in terms of feeling like, okay, there's a lot of experience that I do not have. And therefore I should listen to other people. I should listen to people who have been there and done that. And I should follow their advice, potentially at the expense of my own, uh, of my own internal judgment. And, and I think I, and I've made a lot of mistakes, things that I knew deep down, like, oh God, like, I think we should go this way, but this investor is telling me we should go that way. Or this advisor that's been in industry for 30 years is telling us to go that way. And then I would really check myself like, hey, look, I, I, I may be biased or I, I, I may be not naive and I should, um, and look, these people have been there and done it. And, and ultimately I think I can really trace back even to how we hire um, that ultimately my gut has, has just proven, proven me right time and time again and has, and the times that I have listened to it, the company and the company decisions, I think have them, have been all the more, have the, have been 
have them that much better because there are, I don't know how to explain it, but there is this intuition that no one knows your company better than you. Mm. And that was something that initially I was like, oh, no one, I, I didn't even know the fun. Uh, I was still learning the biotechnology piece when I founded the company. And, and I think over time, I, I learned that very well, I think. And, and I became like, I became an expert at this business and at this, and at this technology. And that also continued to, I, I began feeling much more confident in my decision-making ability. Mm. And I began really sitting with this, um, with, with, with being the CEO of this company and, 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 and trusting my judgment. And then seeing that continue to be proven, proven out, I had now more data points right? To say, okay, my decision-making ability is actually good. When I have made mistakes, it has to be because of these reasons. Hmm. And, and that, I think, I, I would say to my 22-year-old self, like, be bold and fake it till you make it. And just really, <laughs> like, b- believe it because, um, because life is really weird that way in that if you believe it, it has, a, it has an opportunity it has these beautiful ways of materializing itself, like this power of visualization mm-hmm. of, you know, like uh, Professor Amy Cuddy from Harvard Business School, this amazing TED talk about how like, you know, having this like, having these postures. The power poses. The power of poses and like, you know, having these powerful poses before you give a speech and you're that much more confident when you give it because you, you start believing yourself or, or start laughing when you feel really depressed, right? And, and that you'll just start feeling better in your self-esteem um, if self-esteem increases just by, by forcing yourself, even though it may f- feel uncomfortable at first, mm-hmm. it starts becoming actually real. So speaking of things that will improve your self-esteem, uh, congratulations, you were just named uh, uh, by the National Hispanic Institute as their person of the year for, <laughs> the, for the last year. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, what do you think led to that? Why are they picking a 27-year-old guy who is uh, running a biotech company <laughs> as, as their person of the year? Um, I think, I mean, you'll have to ask them. I think what I can, I, and I feel incredibly honored because I am so proud of being Mexican, of being Latino, of like, there, there are not that many of us here in this space. And I, and I think for so many of us, I'm a firm believer that it's, um, in some ways you can't be what you can't see. And in my hometown, I didn't know anyone who was in biotechnology. I didn't know any startup founders. I, I, I didn't realize, I, I didn't know anyone from Harvard. So for me, I had this dream of going to Harvard, but I didn't, I never thought it was really possible because I, I didn't know anyone who looked like me or I didn't know of anyone who had actually gone there that was in some ways in any remote way relatable. I just knew presidents had gone there and that was a Mexican president and U.S. president. Uh, and that was as relatable as it got, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't, and it was, it wasn't until I met someone who went, was from my hometown, the only other girl um, who had gone to, to Harvard in my, uh, uh, that, that was older that, that, than me. And that was like, oh, wow, she went to a different high school from my home, in my, but in my hometown, and, and, it, and it just, it, it, something clicked for me at that moment. Like, wow, this is actually really possible. And I think for the National Hispanic Institute, I, self, I, I would like to think that one thing is, is to show other like young Latinos and other Hispanics that, that the world opportunity is massive and that there are, that, that there are, that, there are Latinos everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm just one case study of someone in biotechnology, which is, a, which is an industry that's historically uh, had, you know, where Latinos have been very underrepresented. Sure. And in Silicon Valley, we're very underrepresented. And so I think in some ways, I provide that data point to say, hey, look, just because there are not that many of us doesn't mean that it's impossible. So speaking of, um, you know, you can't uh, be what you don't see. Let's say there is some young Latino or Latina who is listening mm-hmm. to this right now and they're thinking, this Arturo Elizondo guy sounds really cool. I really admire his success. I'm thinking about maybe starting my own company, yeah. um, but I'm not sure. I want to do something that's going to make the world a better place. Maybe they're concerned about ending factory farming like you are. Um, but what recommendations do you have for them? Uh, if you're going to say uh, some advice to them, they're getting started. 
One is, it depends where they are in the process. I think what really helped me solidify my own perspective and finding like my quote unquote calling very early on was that I threw myself at everything every single summer from the time that I was seven, 16 to the time that I was 22 Every summer, every winter break, every time I had an opportunity, enough of uh, enough time to actually try something, I did it. Because you can only learn so much in, in in school. You can only do so much research. It's not. It doesn't feel real until you're there. And I had. I always thought, okay, what what do I want to do now? What do I want to be when I grow up? And and then try and and, and test test it out. Yeah. And and so I said, I want to be in government. And I tested it out. And it wasn't until I tried it multiple times that I said, you know what, this isn't for me. And I gave it a shot. And now I can close that chapter in my life and then and actually dive in completely into something else. Hmm. And at that point, through those experiences of, of just throwing myself out there, talking to people and 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 doing these internships and and just interacting with people who are very different than me was some was just opened my mind. And so I I would say if you're earlier on in the process of not knowing exactly what you want to be doing is put yourself in these positions to think and to experience, um, to experience, to have new experiences. Because only until then, for me, did I really build that conviction to say, yes, because I've tried these process of elimination, right? Because I tried these 10 other, 10 things that didn't work. Now I actually feel that much better about choosing this 11th thing because I I, I don't have this what if. I actually sort of got it out of my system, tried it, and was able to to move past that. And then I thought, I, I thought what, what, what was really powerful. So I would say, you know, going to conferences, going, just talking to people who, who have done it. Part of my experience in Geneva, why I was so grateful is that I interviewed a bunch of people. Like I interviewed the person who founded New Harvest, which is, and that, that's Jason Matheny, who's your friend um, as, 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 as well. Isha runs that nonprofit now. And so there was that immediate connection because I had done my research, watched her TED talk and, and talked to Jason. And I knew about the space and I had become so int- interested in it. I was able to actually have that conversation with her, but it had I not gone to this conference, I would not have met her in the first place mm-hmm. and, and even learned about uh, about the different things that are happening in the space. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Jason, uh, not only was he, you know, a profile in the book Queen Meat, but um, he offers a, a line in there uh, about um, how he really thinks that there needs to be a company that is helping meat companies use less meat to help them use fewer animals. And he had been telling me about that idea for a long time, for years. He had been telling me, why, you know, why doesn't somebody help the meat companies use fewer animals? Uh, why do you have to create something that competes with them when you could just help them to do better themselves in the same way that, you know, we have hybrid cars that help the automakers have vehicles that mm-hmm. use less gas. And um, it wasn't until uh, sometime after that, that I thought to myself, that is a real, I, I knew it was a good idea, but I never thought of myself as being the one who would ever go and do it. And yet that's, mm-hmm. you know, the Better Meat Co. was really born out of uh, Jason's uh, years long pr- uh, imploring yeah. me on, on that particular topic. So I think he has uh, his hand in the inspiration for a lot of people who, um, and I don't think he necessarily gets the airtime that he deserves for for all the help that yeah. he has provided. Um so, you know, you're five years in now, obviously Arturo Beyond Meats IPO has brought a lot of interest into the space. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are, you know, having like these dollar signs in their eyes uh, in the food tech space now, especially for animal product replacement. Um, you have a lot of investors, including Ingredion, the major uh, ingredients company that mm-hmm. you're partnered with. Are any of them uh, now talking to you about what a possible exit looks like, whether via acquisition or IPO for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, before I answer that question, I, what you just said right now about, about Jason sort of planting this, this, this seed for you, um, one thing that, that reminded me of that I think is so true is this quote about, I I don't know the the full quote, um, but it says like, if not me, who, Mm. if not now, when, and and I think that that is so powerful because the bystander effect is, is really, really, yeah. uh, really powerful, especially for people who are considering the founder journey of who am I to do this? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I think fortunately there, there's been a lot of people who have, uh, 
who have busted that model because they're, they're very, they're people from traditional backgrounds who then say, Hey, you know what? I feel really passionate about this and I, I, I want to do it. Um, but I, I, I think that that's something that that is, I think really compelling to, to keep in mind is that you don't have to have, every, you don't have to check every single box. You need to have the motivation, um, and the conviction to see this through yeah. because founding a company, like there are times we've thought like, oh my God, like, are we going to survive? Like, it's just this insane roller coaster. And in the same day, I can have my highest high and my lowest low. Yeah. And, 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 and you consider like, you know, the, the, you end up questioning, is this worth it? Like, it, it, is this viable? And I'm sure you've gone through this process as well. And it, it just takes a lot. And, and, and that's what you, that's the, that's really the, the, the je ne sais quoi of, uh, the, the, um, no, not, not, not the genesis qua, the sine qua non, like the, that, which we cannot do without, um, that is the indispensable asset that a founder needs to have. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe you can hire the talent. You can hire those people. You, you, you can hire the expertise, but you cannot hire, um, uh, but that's, you cannot outsource that conviction. Yeah. You know, um, uh, ben Horowitz from yeah. the uh, VC fund, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, in his book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, yeah. he notes that uh, there's really only two emotions that founders of startups feel, which are euphoria and terror. And they often come at the same day. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs. In fact, uh, when I come home, my wife, Tony, generally asks me, tell me about the worst and the best things that happened today. And usually they're both pretty extreme. So <laughs> it's, it's an amazing uh, thing. And so uh, I try to adopt the mentality of no drama Obama that, you know, you're cool when you're up and cool when you're down. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're yeah. you're going to be down. You're going to be up. You got to maintain a steady hand at the, yeah. at the helm of the ship to keep moving forward. Um, but let me, uh, let me ask you again about, uh, pre any pre yeah. pressure or suggestions from any of your investors about potentially getting some liquidation event for their investment in Clara. You know what? We actually haven't really not yet talked about it much. And I mm -hmm. think a big part of it is, you know, we, we are going to build this, like my focus and the board's focus is to build this company to be successful in its own mm -hmm. right. And then, and by building a successful business, we'll have optionality to say, all right, does it make more sense to go public? Does it go more, make more sense to get acquired? Um, obviously, you know, we have ingredient, we have ingredient as well as a few other global food companies that are on our cap table. Um, and, and that was very much by design because A, like they could be amazing, they could be amazing partners. Um, and B is that there's also the opportunity where, where there could be actually an even stronger partnership down the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, and potentially, you know, I think potentially like M&A is a possibility, although, although I think right now the number one focus is to build the company, to be, to be successful in its own right. Yeah. And only until then should we even consider any other option. Yeah. I mean, no matter what path you may end up taking in the future, it's not really going to affect your behavior right now. Like your behavior now is going to be the same to build the most successful company that you can build. And if it becomes a target of acquisition, maybe it becomes an IPO candidate. It, it, in many ways, I think it doesn't really matter yeah. uh, what, what future paths there may be for you. Um, so as, as we wind down, Arthur, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I always ask every person on the show. And, and the first is um, if there are any resources that you would recommend that have been mm -hmm. useful for you, whether it be books or speeches, yeah. videos, anything that's actually been helpful for you in your journey as a founder of this company. What was really helpful, so I shared what is helpful for from someone who is sort of earlier on in the process of discovering exactly what that what that company or idea would be. Um, the other one, once you have founded a company, once I founded Clara, one book that I found very useful was uh, Jason Feld's Venture Deals. It actually talks through like the tactics. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, I, I like when I get advice or like, you know, I get coaching or whatever, I don't like the fluffy stuff. Like I need some, okay, just tell me what to do, right? Like what, <laughs> what is X, Y, Z? And like, get, just get really efficient. Like, should I, what's objectively, is this better than this? And, yeah. and, yeah. and, and this book was really good about saying like, this is what a convertible note looks like. This is what a price round looks like. Like yeah. this is how, this is how venture capital works in a really tactical word, like way 
definitions. Like this is dilution. This is <laughs> pre-seed valuation versus, I mean, this is a pre-money, uh, yeah. pre-money valuation yeah. versus post-money. And those were just so helpful to develop the vernacular uh, the and, and to develop the jargon around around this industry. And there's, um, there's also another resource, which is that uh, SOSV, one of our, the fund behind Indie Bio, uh, has, has a video series called VC Lingo with Sean, who is their founder. He's a Sean O'Sullivan behind SOSV. And he does this um, link, like VC Lingo web series where it's a few minutes uh, every, uh, every other day of just, this is what ROI means. This is what, you know, what these different terms, what valuation means. And, and, it, and it's great to hear an investor talk about it that way. I think Andreessen, like all of the, a lot of these venture funds actually have really good materials as well and, and, and thought pieces that, that I think are, are really helpful for someone who is now trying to get their feet wet and hasn't raised capital in the past. Nice. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. In fact, actually, uh, speaking of Josh Balk earlier, he, um, he asked me the other day if there were any books I've read recently that I would recommend to him. And I was like, dude, the only books I've read for like the last two years are business books. So <laughs> if you were interested in that, because, you know, my, my uh, base of knowledge was, uh, was pretty incomplete to yeah. put it diplomatically toward myself <laughs> uh, on this. So yeah, that's, it's been a learning curve for sure. Um, okay. Uh, finally, Arturo, if there's somebody else who's thinking that they want to get into this game, but they're not sure what to do. What other company ideas do you think are worthwhile for people to explore? Uh, you know, maybe they're ones that you thought about doing yourself. Maybe they're ones you just wish somebody else would do. But throw out an idea to for want to be or for like entrepreneurs, people who want to be entrepreneurs, uh, to pursue that you think could actually make a, a good impact in the world. Yeah, it's a good question. One thing that I thought a lot about, and someone asked me like, if I weren't in food or the animal protein, alternative protein space, what, where would I, what would I be doing? And I told them that if I can't see myself leaving this space, Mm -hmm. I think I will always be in the, in the animal supply chain, uh, uh, area. But I think food waste is such a huge question mark as well, because we have enough food to feed everyone in the world. And yet the distribution piece of it is, is the supply chain piece of it is fundamentally broken. And so much food gets thrown away. And, and I think about all of these random ingredients that, that get tossed aside and finding ways to upcycle. There's a company called Regrained that uses, uh, that uses like spent beer grains, spent beer grain to make protein bars. And I think that that's just such an incredible idea. There are, are, there's another company that uses the chickpea water that normally gets thrown away and, 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 and makes it into an ingredient that you can use for as an egg white replacer mm-hmm. for plant-based products. And I think that there are so many things that companies throw away right now not realizing how valuable that is. And I think to the, like the work that you do with the Better Meat Company about working with these companies to think, of, to, to think about the, the way that they source their products differently I think there's a lot of opportunity there with a lot of the other ingredients that they spend their time, that they, that they work on. And I know like there are waste streams that we have that, that I'm like, there has to be a market for this. Yeah. Like there is no way. And like, these are the cheapest products that you can find because they're literally thrown away by companies. Sometimes companies even pay for it. Yeah, yeah, they have a negative value because you have to pay to get rid of them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we had a, a recent episode um, with a... Um, an entrepreneur named uh, Lori Goff, who is using spent beer brewing water to make plastic. She mm-hmm. subjects it to a fermentation process and makes plastic out of it, which is a particularly uh, cool way to think about, you know, you have this big waste stream from a, a you know really huge industry mm-hmm. like beer and what can you do with it to actually provide value for them? It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Even with uh, chickpea water or more, uh, more eloquently called aquafaba, which is mm-hmm. a better marketing term for yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just think about how much biotech one would probably try to come up to fi- with to find an egg white replacer that could create a meringue. <laughs> and then they're like, no, no, here's something that, you know, you throw out every single day that you can actually just use. It's really, yeah. you know, it's, it's a truly incredible thing. It reminds me of something that uh, Josh Tetrick, the CEO of Just Said on the show, he's like, you know, if you want to make a difference, sure, you can go into biotech, but you could also use like regular plant-based products just that you get off the shelf or that are being thrown away to do something really cool with them too. So, mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, so are there any specific ingredients, Arturo, as we wrap up and, and uh, close out the show that you would recommend that people are looking for, um, whether it's waste streams or industries that you think that they should uh, be thinking about to use something? Um, not specifically, although I know that there are a lot of companies that make a bunch of different kinds of ingredients that people are eating right now, but are not being used for different purposes, that, mm. that are not being used in different applications. And I think because so many... Unless you're a food company, you don't have a food science team. Mm -hmm. And yet there are companies that make industrial like processing aids and ingredients that people are are that are in our food and could potentially have like really unique functionalities. And they're already producing them at scale, yeah. but for very different purposes. What does it look like to actually use uh, those those things in um, as a you know as a way to create food? Yeah. Very cool. Well, hopefully so that, that'll be sufficient to inspire somebody to get started. And uh, maybe they'll be on yeah. this show sometime talking about the, the $50 million <laughs> that they've raised too. So Arturo, uh, I'm really proud of all the progress that you made. You should be too. It's a, it's a real honor to get to come and revisit with you a few years later after we were talking uh, much closer to the beginning of the company, see how much progress you've made. And if these products are imminently going to be on the market, I cannot wait to try them myself. So congratulations on all your success yeah. and progress so far. And I, I hope that you succeed in your mission. Yeah. I've loved having you on this journey. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for the opportunity to to share our story and hopefully uh, plant a little seed for others. Very good. Thanks, Arturo. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.